Hello, and welcome to the History of Islam podcast, episode 14, A New HQ. Hello, and welcome back. Last episode marked the beginning of Quraysh's active and coordinated efforts in response to Muhammad's preaching in Mecca. We left off with the onset of a Qurayshi propaganda campaign that aimed to slow down the rise of Islam and smear Muhammad's reputation. Qurayshi's strategy was relatively effective, but it did not completely stop Muhammad. He was still free to roam around and do virtually as he pleased. Soon enough, Muhammad began to add to his followers individuals who were from outside the city of Mecca. One notable convert was a man known as Abu Dhar. His tribe was a tribe known as the Beni Ghifar, and they were situated to the northwest of Mecca, not far from the Red Sea. Abu Dhar was a Bedouin, and he and his tribe were notorious highwaymen. Despite his dishonorable occupation, Abu Dhar was said to have been very skeptical of the Arab pagan beliefs. In a sense, out of pride really, he refused to pay any respect towards the idols that the Arabs throughout the peninsula revered. After hearing word of a man in Mecca who claimed to not only be a prophet, but also preached that there was only one God, Abu Dhar was determined to meet the man and he set out to Mecca in order to find Muhammad and learn a little bit more about what he had to say. Qurashi agents managed to get to him first, as they had planned, but they were not able to deter him from seeking out Muhammad due to Abu Dhar's extreme determination to hear Muhammad's words for himself. Eventually, without too much difficulty, the highwayman by trade managed to find his way to Muhammad's house, where he found Muhammad sleeping on a bench with a cloak covering his face in order to shield his eyes from the harsh rays of the sun. And shortly after conversing with Muhammad and hearing the verses of the Quran, Abu Dhar converted to Islam. Another similar encounter occurred around the same time period with a man known as Tufail. Tufail also, like Abu Dhar, was from another tribe that lay out to the west of Mecca. But he, unlike Abu Dhar, was not in Mecca actively seeking Muhammad, who was in fact there for the pilgrimage. After hearing the words and the warnings of the Quraysh, Tufail was in fact so fearful of Muhammad's words that he would stuff his ears with cotton uh, whenever he was at the Kaaba in order to prevent himself from hearing the Prophet's words. Eventually, Sayna heads prevailed and Tufail convinced himself to actually listen to what Muhammad had to say. Why shouldn't he? If Muhammad's words were fair, good and pleasant, then there would be no harm in accepting them. And if they were foul and evil he would simply reject them. Tufail went to Muhammad and asked him a few questions. And by the time their conversation had concluded, Tufail had converted to Islam. Both Abu Dhar and Tufail would go back to their tribes and eventually convert all of them to the religion of Islam. With Abu Dhar having the more immediate impact, it took Tufail a much longer time to convince his tribesmen to leave behind their pagan ways. Abu Dhar was able to very quickly and successfully convert his tribesmen and after his meeting with Muhammad he went back and continued his calling as a highwayman. This time however he made sure to pay special attention.
to the caravans of the Quraysh. Back in Mecca, the atmosphere, the general attitude of the Meccans towards Islam was becoming much more hostile. As a result of this, a lot of Muhammad's early followers who had actually converted privately and in a covert manner had decided to keep their change of faith a secret. In 614 AD, a year after Muhammad's public proclamation of Islam and four years after the incident at the cave of Hira, Muhammad set up a new headquarters, a new HQ, a base for his preaching activities at the house of one of his earliest followers, Al-Arqam ibn Abi Al-Arqam. Al-Arqam was another within that long list of individuals who were brought into the fold of Islam by the hand of Abu Bakr. As we said, he was a very early convert, and at this point in time, 614 AD, Al-Arqam would have been around 17 years old, so a very young man. He was from the prominent Beni Makhzum clan, so that means he was from the same clan as the number one opponent of the nascent Islamic movement, Abu al-Hakam, or as the Muslims dubbed him, and how history remembers him, Abu Jahl. Al-Arqam and his house were chosen to serve as the new center of Islamic preaching for a few reasons. The first is due to Al-Arqam's lineage. The Makhzum and the Hashim clans were great rivals. So by choosing Al-Arqam, who was from the Bani Makhzum, it was almost like hiding in plain sight, right under the noses of Abu Jahl and his cronies, who would never have thought that a Makhzumi would aid someone from the Hashim clan. Number two was the actual physical structure and the actual physical or geographical location of the property within Mecca. What was unique about Al-Arqam's house was that it was quite a large house and it allowed for people to easily slip in and out of it. The house's primary priority in its function as the new center of Islamic preaching was to provide a safe place where Muhammad and his followers could congregate, where they could secretly meet and worship without being harassed by anyone. Muhammad would end up spending a lot of time in the house of Al-Arqam. He would sit there with his followers, teaching them the religion of Islam, teaching them the Quran, and performing acts of worship and so on. In addition, the house served as a place where Muhammad could privately meet with any inquirers who had any questions. What we're going to see in the future is that when an individual uh, seeks out Muhammad in order to convert to the religion of Islam, they would do so at the house of Al-Arqam. Around the same time period that Al-Arqam's house was becoming Muhammad's new HQ, Khadija had given birth to her final child, a young boy who Muhammad named after his father, Abdullah. Sadly, just like his older brother before him, the boy died a premature death and did not survive past his infant years. His life cut short before the end of the year 615 AD. Thus, raising Muhammad's tally of dead sons to two, with only his four daughters managing to survive past childhood. The death of the infant Abdullah was much to the delight of Muhammad's opponents in Mecca, who rejoiced at the fact that Muhammad had no male heirs. For the Arabs, as we have discussed previously, seeing as the tribe was the central social institute that pretty much everything revolved around, Lineage ended up being pretty much everything for the Arabs, and Muhammad's lack of sons 
was easy pickings for the opponents of Islam to insult Muhammad with. Every cloud has a silver lining. And it was insults to Muhammad which did much to wound his honour and pride that actually brought about the next Marqui convert to Islam. One day, Abu Jahl apparently went a tad too far in his offensive insults and taunts towards Muhammad, slights that the Prophet only ignored and did not respond to. Muhammad's lack of retaliation, however, only served to further enrage Abu Jahl, who then crossed the line and struck Muhammad with a rock to the head, causing the Prophet to bleed profusely. The incident was witnessed by a freedman who was a confederate to Abu Bakr's clan, the Beni Taim, so it was quite likely that she was actually a sympathizer of the early Islamic movement. She rushed away to tell someone who could support Muhammad of what she had seen. She ended up informing one of Muhammad's uncles. So far in our podcast, we have only met two of Muhammad's numerous uncles, the critical Abu Lahab and the kind, protective Abu Talib. Today, we introduce a third, Hamza. Hamza had a somewhat special connection with Muhammad. If you recall from one of our early episodes, I mentioned that when Abdullah, Muhammad's father, was getting married to Muhammad's mother, Abdullah and his father, Abdul Muttalib, shared a wedding night. In addition to this, Abdul Muttalib's wife was the sister of Abdullah's wife. The marriage between Abdullah and Amina would result in the birth of Muhammad. The marriage between Abdul Muttalib and his wife Amina's sister would result in the birth of Hamza. As a result of this, although Hamza was Muhammad's uncle, he was only about two to four years his senior. Hamza, like the vast majority of the Beni Hashim clan, was indifferent to Muhammad's preaching and his new religion and he remained as he were, stuck fast to his pagan ways. Hamza was not a man cut from an administrative cloth or anything like that at all. He did not really engage in the political scenery that was present in Mecca, nor was he one of the great merchants of the city. Hamza was quite simply a martial man. He was renowned for his incredible prowess and great skill in the martial arts that the Arabs admired and held in great esteem. He was a fantastic wrestler and an extraordinary master swordsman, but what he greatly excelled in was archery. He was an acclaimed hunter. Hunting was his passion in life, just like some of the spiritually inclined in Mecca would relegate themselves to isolation in the empty valleys of Mecca. Hamza would embark on great hunting trips out in the empty sands of Arabia, isolating himself from civilization for days on end on a mission to slay the greatest beasts of the desert. It was upon returning to Mecca from one of these hunting trips that Hamza heard of Abu Jahl's transgression and attack on Muhammad. To put it quite simply, Hamza was enraged. With the red mist clouding his vision, he rushed to the Kaaba and beelined straight towards Abu Jahl like a heat-seeking missile. Before any words could be uttered, Hamza took his bow and struck Abu Jahl. Strike me back if you can. I am now of Muhammad's religion. I say what he says. In his moment of anger, with the adrenaline still pumping, Hamza had not only 
attacked Abu Jahl in retaliation for his previous actions and in order to regain the honour for his clan and his nephew, Hamza had also possibly inadvertently declared himself one of Muhammad's followers. And he stood there daring Abu Jahl to do something about it. Daring Abu Jahl to attack him the same way he had attacked Muhammad. A few of Abu Jahl's clansmen who were sitting nearby immediately rose to their feet in order to aid their clansmen. But Abu Jahl, possibly fearing some kind of greater escalation, waved them back, admitting to them that it was he who had crossed the line previously. After the incident, Hamza went to look for Muhammad and he was pointed towards the house of Al-Arqam by one of Muhammad's followers. And there he remained true to his earlier exclamation and officially converted to Islam. Muhammad was absolutely ecstatic with the news and he gave Hamza the kunya, the nickname Asadullah, the Lion of God. As surprising and as sudden as it was, Hamza's conversion was nonetheless momentous. He was a notable addition to the Muslim ranks and a great asset to the physical strength of the Muslim cause. His conversion served as a beacon of light, a a lighthouse that ignited the hopes of the weaker followers of Islam that they would now have some measure of protection. More importantly, Hamza's conversion, which was soon followed by another conversion of a prominent and influential member of the tribe of Quraysh marked the true beginning of a shift from Muhammad and his followers forming a weak and despised annoying minority to becoming more of a realistic and credible threat to the stability of Mecca and the Quraysh's hegemony of the city and its outlying areas and regions. Islam was becoming a threat that the Quraysh had to deal with and they had to deal with it quickly and decisively. Next episode, we will look at the conversion that I mentioned earlier that would complement Hamza's conversion and make Muhammad's position much stronger in Mecca, leading to the Quraysh trying to bargain with Muhammad, offering him all sorts of things just to get him to stop his preaching activities. When this would ultimately fail, the Quraysh would strip off their velvet gloves and show their iron fists, with the prosecution of the weaker Muslims being ramped up to 10. Islam would soon have its first martyrs. Before I go, I would just like to mention a few things. As you know, and as I have announced uh, at the end of the last episode, unfortunately, the history of Islam would have to take a break for the next two months, and then after that we'll be returning to normal with weekly episodes. Um, I just want to point you towards a few things that could help you fill the gap whilst we are on the break. Number one is I have done a guest spot for the Myths and History of Greece and Rome podcast. The guest spot was actually an overview of Muhammad's life and then the brief succession of Abu Bakr. So it's from the beginning of Islam to the beginning of the Islamic conquests of the Near East. It's about 30 minutes long, so I think you'll enjoy that. It's quite similar to what we have going here, except everything has been really smashed together 
in order to keep it brief and concise. Another resource is The Message Movie. That's a movie that I keep banging on about. It was made in the 1970s and it's absolutely fantastic. There's a scene in it from uh, Hamza's conversion uh, when Hamza confronts Abu Jahl, which is quite quite a really good scene. I'll have it on the episode guide. I have a YouTube link uh, on the episode guide, sorry, where you can see it. And I also have a YouTube link of the entire movie if you'd like to see it. Again, this is on the episode guide. Um, another history of Islam sort of resource that you can uh, that you can watch and that can entertain you during the break is a 30 episode TV series that is actually on the life of Omar. If you do not know who that is, that is the second uh, caliph of the Islamic empire, if you will, uh, the second successor to Muhammad. And although it's on his life, um, the early episodes, it's a 30 episode TV series, the early episodes focus quite a lot on the nascent Islamic movement and it's quite informative and it's quite good. It's in Arabic but the English subtitles are pretty good. Again, that's available in HD for free on YouTube. I'll put that on the episode guide. It is quite likely that I may publish an episode here and there if I can during the break. So in order for you to stay updated, do so, as I have mentioned on the last episode, do so through the Facebook page and the blog. If you don't know how to find these by now, it's facebook.com forward slash the History of Islam podcast and the blog is historyofislampodcast.blogspot.com. As you now know, the History of Islam podcast is part of the Agora podcast network and there will be a super interesting special episode coming up soon. So again, that's another thing you can look forward to during the break. Also at Agora, we have a podcast of the month feature where we try to bring interesting and educational podcasts to curious and knowledge thirsty listeners. April's podcast of the month goes to the Bohemian podcast. The podcast looks into the history and the culture of the Czech Republic and its people. It's pretty interesting. It's produced by Peter Coleman and Travis Dow, who you may know from the History of Germany podcast. Another really interesting and informative podcast. You can find out more at podcastnick.com. That's podcastnik.com. Another way to keep yourself entertained. Uh, last episode, I mentioned... Um, the Qiyam app for those of you that wanted to know a bit more about the actual tenets of Islam and things like prayer and how Muslims actually worship um, I've been notified by a few listeners who actually found the app very useful about a feature that is called Dua Sharing Dua is the Islamic equivalent for prayer uh, well not prayer in the sense of the way Muslims pray, but prayer in the sense of uh, the way Christians pray. Making prayers to God, uh, asking for things or asking for forgiveness, etc, etc. So the Da'a sharing app would allow you to see how exactly uh, Muslims speak to their God. Um, it's a bit different from the way Catholics do, because uh, as far as I know, uh, Catholics have to do so through a priest, whereas in the Muslim faith, there is no intermediary between man and God. It's pretty interesting. If you want to find out more about the app, again, it's free. It shows you all the prayer timetables, all the times that the Muslims have to pray. Uh, it has a compass that shows you the direction in which the Muslims have to pray. 
Again, very interesting stuff that can keep you entertained during the break. Find out more about the Qiyam app. Just search Qiyam on the iTunes store. Q-I-Y-A-M. It's free. And if you are on Android, then fear not. I am told that it will be available on Android in about a month's time. Also, I want to give a very big thank you to all of you who donated. I am very grateful. I cannot express my gratitude enough. You people allow for the podcast to keep going. I want to give two particular shout outs to Sakari Elenen from Finland, who was the first person to donate to the History of Islam, and to Louise and Lawrence from the UK, who have made the greatest contribution so far. Send me emails on the blog's contact page or the Facebook page during the break so I do not get lonely. Everything I have mentioned today, the TV series, the app, etc., will be easily accessible and linked on this episode's episode guide. So if this has been a bit of an information overload for you, just go over the episode guide where you can pick through it at your own time. With very great regret, I'm afraid that has to be all for now. I'll see you in two months' time, where we'll be returning in full force, tackling the rich ocean that is Islamic history, one week at a time. Goodbye. Whoa.